I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending December 11th. Using touchscreens has become so natural, it's hard to imagine how the mechanism itself, the mechanism of swiping your finger across a screen, might be improved. Well, it seems there is an improvement. We talk with Next Input CEO Ali Fogey about being able to turn just about any surface into a button that is far less finicky than today's touchscreens. Also, when we talk about the Internet of Things, our attention is often drawn by the things. The Internet half of the question is equally important. This week, we have a discussion with experts from the Wireless Broadband Alliance and the LoRa Alliance about how wireless networks are being deployed and used to support some of the most extensive and sophisticated IoT applications to date. For millennia, we humans have activated our complex machines with levers and dials and push buttons. The touchscreen was one of the very few major leaps in human-machine interfaces. Maybe the only one until voice input rolled around. Most sources I've seen say the capacitive touchscreen was invented in the mid-1960s by a British inventor named E.A. Johnson. It's interesting to note that Johnson otherwise appears to have left no trace, at least not on the web, which seems rather incredible for someone credited with such a prominent innovation. Anyway, touchscreens began to get embedded in commercial products starting in the late 1980s. Extremely unreliable at first, touchscreens are on their way to being the most common interface with machines that we have. Well, that's assuming if they're not already. Switches, dials, and buttons have by no means gone away, but they're far more scarce than they used to be. Take a look at the control panels in Apollo spacecraft. They had literally hundreds of switches. Then compare to today's SpaceX module, which has three big touchscreens and maybe a couple dozen buttons, if that many. But capacitive touchscreens have their limits. There are several, but the two that just about everyone has discovered for themselves is that they don't work if you're wearing average gloves, and they don't work if your fingers are wet. There are two new steps in human-machine interface technology to get around problems like that. Force sensing and gesture control. Next Input offers them both. The company was founded in 2012. Investors include Sierra Ventures and Intel Capital. Ali Fogi was named CEO in 2015. He joined the company from InventSense. Before that, he worked at Maxim Integrated. We recently spoke with Fogey about the evolution in new interface technology and what some of the next products will be to lose their buttons and levers and dials. A quick heads up on some of the jargon you're likely to hear. Human-machine interface technology is commonly shortened to HMI. Also, Next Input's Force Sense products are based on microelectrical mechanical technology or MEMS. Describe Next Input's technology. Next Input um, 
is uh, our mission is in human machine interface um, for human machine interface um, you either need touch technology since we're often controlling actuating or touchless or with audio our mission is to focus on touch and touchless and audio is not part of our mission now so we have force touch technology that and associated solutions for many different applications that we brought to market and that's part of that emerging hmi that we're actually enabling steve jobs was famous uh, for wanting to get rid of mechanical buttons entirely um, apple was indeed quite successful in minimizing buttons on apple products the the uh, First iPad, or excuse me, iPod Nano had had that wheel. Um, your smartphones now all have a button or three, and we're talking about getting getting rid of buttons entirely uh, with touch screens. Are we talking about getting rid of buttons entirely with touch screens? Eventually, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's important to delineate between a button. And a mechanical button. Okay. Uh, a button can be realized with a mechanical gadget, mechanical switch. It can be done with a cap touch, capacitive touch, or with our technology, force touch. So, you know, we can, there are three different technologies that can realize the function of a button. Okay. And two of them, we believe, are on the way out. <laughs> um. We've seen things like um, the the wrap around smartphones, where the the screen wraps around the edge of the bezel, and and uh, the the edge is now active. Um, are there other um, are, are there other applications uh, that we're likely to see uh, where where a force touch button is is likely to replace what we've what we're now accustomed to. Yes, absolutely. And let me back up a little bit to put the context around this. Since you started by talking about Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, um, their desire to get rid of um, mechanical buttons. Their aversion to mechanical buttons is driven by the fact that mechanics would dictate the aesthetics. Um, and that that would... Uh, limit the hand of industrial designers. We want to give industrial desi- designers full discretion in that in their design. Buttons are, you know, large, uh, bulky, uh, not very reliable. They, their life cycle is anywhere from 100 to 500,000 cycles, um, and they often uh, offer a single function. Okay. Um, all of those limit the hands of industrial designers when it's bulky, when it has a gap around it, when it needs to be sealed, when it you know protrudes out of a surface. The 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 where where things are going is this, you know, on, on, on smartphones, we envision in the next couple of years full wrap around glass, 
full wraparound grass where you can have your phone with you in a meeting, you know, face down and on the side of it, you can see a call coming in or a text message or so on and so forth. You can't have a mechanical button protrude out of the side of a phone that has wraparound glass. So, so that technology is not going to make it. The new smart watches have an industrial form factor where you cannot fit, physically fit a mechanical button in them. In cars, high-end cars are moving towards smart surfaces. Just beautiful aesthetics, no buttons, no knobs, no dials. You still have the same controls and ability to control whether you're, you know, AC or display or, you know, whole host of things, but you don't see mechanical buttons coming out of these surfaces. So uh, whether it's your smartphone, watch, car, even appliances, um, they are all moving away from uh, mechanical buttons. And often we see them starting to move away from cap touch. Uh, I explained in detail about mechanical buttons, but capacitive touch has limitations. You know, you get into your car, you know, 50, 70, $100,000 car, it's cold, you're in Boston, you're in Frankfurt, and it's in the winter time, and you gotta take your gloves off to use the display because capacitive touch does not, it does not have the ability to take your input if you've got gloves on. Or you're in Nashville, Tennessee, and you got condensation on your fingers in summertime, cap touch cannot, you know, uh, work with moisture on your fingers, or you're using a pen. So there are real-world limitations, issues that we would solve. In our technology, you can use dry finger, wet finger. You can be, for God's sake, in a water. You can have gloves on. You can use a pen. It will work. So, you know, that seventy, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 car would offer you a pleasant, you know, experience when you're using the display when our technology is uh, in incorporated in it. So, um, and I just want to give you a little taste of what's coming. And appliances, oftentimes, they're getting away from buttons. They will, you know, they'll have beautiful aesthetics, stainless steel. All the button functions are there, but no longer mechanical buttons or capacitive touch because in the kitchen, you either wash something and your hands are wet or you got gloves on because you're handling something hot. Those things don't mix well with capacitive technology. So the two 700-pound gorillas in the room are on their way out, but they will take a few years. So there are two questions that come out of what you did, what we were just discussing, and, and I wanted to, to hit them both. Um, the first is uh, there, there seem to be a, uh, there is a, a list of considerations when designing, and, and it includes... Um, the reliability of, of the interface, um, the usability, um, the functionality. And um, often when we're talking with engineers, um, we don't hear too much about the aesthetics of, say, a blade server in a, um, in, in, a, <laughs> in a data center. But, yes. but when you're talking about uh, commercial pro you know, consumer products, um, aesthetics are incredibly important. Um, you mentioned all of them. Uh, if you, if you start talking about, um, a, a telephone that has a completely glass, 
uh, encasement or, 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 um, a, an automobile dashboard, um, that, that operates entirely by touch, responds entirely to touch. Um, are there trade-offs between those qualities? Um, do you, uh, might you reduce reliability a little bit in order to get a more um, uh, a more interesting looking dashboard? Um, are, are are there trade offs and where are they? Great question, very insightful question. Um, um, no, um, <laughs> we, we they aren't actually, and I will elaborate on that. Um, first of all. With respect to your question, you know, what's more important, functionality, aesthetics, reliability, usability, all four. You can't, you can't, you can't um, yield ground on one to achieve the other three. You have to have a great set of trade-offs between all four. So all four are important. Um, uh, It has to be functional. Uh, Now people are requiring it has to be aesthetically attractive, whether it's your phone or smart watch or interior cabin of a car or appliances because they're paying a lot of money for these things it has to be super reliable or the warranty cost will kill you uh, particularly if you're getting into cars and things like that um, and it's got to be intuitive in the in the end common denominator between all of these is has to offer a good experience so you know we're able to provide um, uh, solutions that actually increase functionality. Mechanical button, as I said, has one level. We can provide multi-level controls where you push uh, you know, lightly and your window will open half, window of a car. You push harder to go all the way down. Or with a button, you can multi-code it. You know, push gently, it does one thing. Push harder, it does another thing. Um, or you can continuously press and zoom in into something, analog function. So we're increasing functionality with respect to incumbent technologies. We're allowing for any industrial design and much more attractive aesthetics um, with any material, not just glass, it could be stainless steel, aluminum, wood, leather. It could be straight. It could be curved. Um, we're actually increasing reliability by two orders of magnitude, 100 times more reliable. Silicon is much, much more reliable than mechanical gadgets. And our technology based on silicon. So we're able, uh, we're able to bring them all to the customers. And that's what happens over time with evolution, with progress, with new technology. You're able to solve more and more problems. And we're on the forefront of that. Um, I have, uh, I, I think I can intuitively appreciate the, the, um, the advantages. But I can also imagine cases where um, um, I would have to adapt and might not be able to adapt. For instance, um, when I'm in my car, um, I don't really want to look at my radio. Um, I, I, I think it's, and I don't have to because I have my presets. And if I just put my hand over on the dash, and even if I have to fumble around, eventually I'm going to come across 
five buttons in a row or six, and I'm going to know, ah, those are my preset buttons. I'm still not looking down there, and I know, okay, the radio station I want to listen to now is the second preset, and I press that second button. I'm doing it all by feel without actually looking at the dashboard um, because I have... I have something that my fingers are going to bump into, something physical. Um, how do you compensate or or replicate that experience with a, a, a force type of, of button? Mm. Another great question. Um, we can even solve problems for folks like you. <laughs> <laughs> So physically, you can make that surface look any shape you want. If you like something protruding out or you like the feel and look of a button, well, that that can be accommodated. That's not a problem. Uh, Except the difference here is uh, there are no gaps. So dust and moisture doesn't get in. That button doesn't become sticky. And as you feel your way around those five buttons, yeah, actually your button talks back to you through haptics so you can you really don't have to lock down now you know as you're trying to push those preset buttons you get haptic feedback and it'll confirm that you are on those preset buttons and you did actuate something so you know you don't have to get used to a totally new experience where it's very disconnected from the past we can recreate that and we have and still bring to you gapless more reliable, and with feedback built in. Feedback through haptic sensation. And by the way, those three, six preset buttons can all have the same haptic, or each one of them can have a different sensation. All right. Um, as a practical matter, um, what happens with a device that has no mechanical buttons when that device loses power again i'm i'm going back to my experience with my car yes. and you know if my if my if my key fob loses battery or or i'm i'm prone to leaving my lights on overnight and killing the battery um you know how do i get in my car unless i still have are, are you going to need to always have a backup key slot or some sort of mechanical backup or have you figured that out too yeah no we have for you know let's take a let's take a smartphone because there are billions of them around yeah um and they use a lot of mechanical buttons bless their heart what happens (laughs) what what happens when the battery runs out can you operate those mechanical buttons well, yeah, I mean, so I, could, I mean, the, the uh, a, a flip work. switch will move. They won't work, but they but they won't move. work. Yeah, battery is out. Battery is out, right? Um, so it's no different with our technology. If the battery goes out, this, that smartphone is not functional, whether it has mechanical buttons or capacitive touch or our force touch, right? But you know, again, we, we get this question a lot. You know, what happens if the power dies? You know, um, uh, that that device is not functional. By the way, our de- you know our our technology helps with you know power consumption and prolonging the battery life. 
we draw so little current that we actually extend that battery life. You know, compared to capacitive touch or some of the alternative technologies. Okay. Is there anything about the technology that I haven't asked about that's pertinent, germane, or just really cool about it? Yes. Um, I, you know, you've asked great questions. You know, one of the things we often get asked is, is it only good for you know, buttons and, and, and one vertical market? And our response to that is today we have traction with this force touch technology, which is a very viable alternative to two large incumbents, mechanical buttons and capacitive technology, cap touch. You know, we've got traction in the automotive market in a big way, in wearable market, smartphones, TWS earbuds, you know, personal care, as in your toothbrush and devices like that and in industrial displays. So several major vertical markets, and uh, we've established footprint, and customers are voting with their feet, adopting this technology because they see the significant advantages it would bring to their equipment and the experience it would bring to their customers. So it's got legs across many, many applications and vertical markets. And this is what we believe is the beginning of the tsunami. This is a very early in adopt in a very early stage in adopting this new HMI. And over the next five, ten years, you're gonna see surgical, you know, medical surgical equipment deploying this, hmm. robots. You know, I can go on and on. Have you ever had a potential customer come in and surprise you with uh, an application? Yes. As smart as we think we are, we know 20% of the applications, it's like an you know, iceberg. 20% of it or 30% of it sticks out of the water. 70% of it is you know, hidden underwater. We think we're really smart. We can only see the tip of the iceberg. The iceberg is actually a lot larger. And, and, and the greater market is smarter than we are here. They'll find a lot of different uses, and they have come to us with applications. We, you know, surprised us. Can you give me an example? Some I can. Others were under NDA. Okay, well. <laughs> uh, well, so, you know, using this uh, technology in instruments that would uh, do surgery on you, uh -huh. uh, people want people to be able to measure uh, force levels and pressure levels and what they're cutting into. Um, using this technology in rings, for example, to be able to monitor, you know, biometrics applications. Mm -hmm. um, using this technology in a seat of a car where people can tell your weight distribution and i.e. whether you're drunk or dead. <laughs> so the car would take over. So there are a lot of, a lot of interesting applications that they would actually wow. give you contextual awareness of what's going on. Wow. Very interesting. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Likewise. I enjoyed it. Thank you for your great questions. That was Ali Fogey, CEO of Next Input. The company recently announced the cumulative number of devices it has shipped past the 30 million unit mark in November. 
That was a 50% increase in total unit shipments in only three months, according to the company, which also said it achieved its first profitable quarter in Q3, and also that it is expecting to report 250% revenue growth in 2020. If you'd like more information about HMI, visit this podcast episode's webpage at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts. We have information from Next Input, and we have a link to an article from our sister publication, EDN, on the subject. It's called Surface Haptics Technology Enriches Touchscreen Interactions. Give it a look. The most common trajectory for an electronics company is that it starts with an idea, some sort of innovation that solves a problem, and it goes from there. That's not how On Semiconductor started. On Semi was founded in 1999 when Motorola spun off a set of operations it didn't much want and apparently couldn't interest anyone in buying. Keith Jackson was hired as CEO three years later in 2002, and during the next 18 years, he averaged about an acquisition a year. Growing on semi from a $1 billion cast-off to a $5.5 billion diversified company. And then in September, he announced his retirement. One of the big questions after that was, who would succeed him as CEO? In fact, we had Jackson on this podcast on October 9th, and my colleague Junko Yoshida asked him. Here's Junko and Jackson in October. When I interviewed TI, when I interviewed Intel, every company actually, you know, as big as these companies are, they actually do have the succession plan um, in, 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 in place. Uh, what was your plan? Yeah, we have succession plans as well. Uh, we've been working with executives to prepare them uh, yeah. for many years. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just from a best practice perspective, uh, we're looking... Uh, both uh, at those internal secession candidates and looking externally, uh, just, to, just to get a lot of comfort that we've got the best person going forward. It took a couple months, but An Semi finally announced its new CEO. He's Hassan El Khoury, the former CEO of Cypress Semiconductor. Back in 2016, when he became the chief executive at Cypress, El Khoury was 36 one of the youngest CEOs of a large chip company he hadn't founded himself. He quickly developed an action plan that he called Cypress 3.0. By one very important measure, his plan succeeded. Cypress became attractive enough for an even bigger company to buy. That was Infineon, which purchased Cypress in 2019. That deal closed last April, and at that point, El Khoury became a free agent. Akuri has demonstrated the ability to create an action plan and execute it. Another way of looking at his career is that he's also demonstrated the ability to groom a company for acquisition. That's going to make it fun to keep track of On Semiconductor going forward. On our podcast episode webpage, we've got links to our recent story about On Semi hiring Alcori, to a profile of Alcori that we did here at EE Times early in 2019, and to the podcast we did a couple months ago with Jackson. Let's face it, so far, from the average consumer's point of view, the Internet of Things has been kind of boring. To be fair, if you remember that the phrase, the Internet of Things, 
is just some marketing guy's suggestion to replace the phrase machine-to-machine communications, well, of course it's boring for consumers. The Internet of Things was never, ever, ever going to be something that was going to show up under your Christmas tree. Not that the IoT won't produce benefits to consumers, because it will from time to time, but the Internet of Things is all about getting our machines to work better in concert with each other. And many of the first beneficiaries are going to be involved in business and industry. The prerequisite for the IoT isn't the things, however. The prerequisite is the connectivity, the Internet. That connectivity has to be cheap and easy. That's why the Wireless Broadband Alliance, which promotes Wi-Fi, and the LoRa Alliance, which promotes LoRaWAN wireless technology, have been working together for some time. Remy Lorraine worked for Semtech, but is here today in his capacity as the LoRa Alliance Network Operator Forum Vice Chair. Bruno Thomas is the Director of Programs and Project Management at the Wireless Broadband Alliance. The two were our guests a year ago, talking about the potential benefits of the collaboration. Well, today, they're here talking about actual implementations. The two co-authored a paper that shares the results of several Wi-Fi and LoRaWAN multi-radio trials conducted by companies such as Boingo, Charter, Cisco, Volvo, Lacuna Space, and seven others. I asked what changed in the last 12 months to spur this initial round of activity. The first voice you hear will be Bruno Thomas. I believe in, in one year what, what changed is, is the member appetite uh, to go forward with, with deployment. So really what we have now on the paper is you know companies that have both an interest on, on, on the Wi-Fi world and then the lot of one uh, type deployments uh, to bring you know to their customers the, the best TCO and eventually uh, the return of, of those investments. Um, specifically, we are quite happy that three prominent use cases are now covered. So being the multi-dwelling uh, uh, units for residential type um, use cases. Uh, we also have smart cities with smart poles supporting both uh, Wi-Fi and some lot of one endpoints. Uh, and also some rooming and interoperability uh, type use cases that probably to your initial point, Brian, is one of the main motivations. So if we have the, the identity mechanisms and policy interworking between both technologies effectively deployed uh, in, in the real world, the more likely uh, companies making a decision on investing in either of these technologies to address even upcoming 5G use cases uh, becomes a no-brainer. Excellent. So there are uh, uh, a, a, an, an interesting list of different applications uh, that people have actually of, of networks that people are actually using and have in place today. Um, I was intrigued by the one, or perhaps there's more than one, um, involved with uh, uh, automotive communicating with uh, with uh, vehicles. Um, can I get you guys to explain what that was and, and how it works? Yes. So first, uh, let's, do, let's introduce the, the topic by saying that uh, you have five categories of use cases combining the two technologies that uh, serve the automotive markets. 
tracking and logistics applications, specifically location features, broadband applications like the connected car or internet access, access control to transportation, people counting, cameras, reservation, ticket management, or toll monitoring. You can have traffic management like smart parkings, guidance, uh, remote guidance and control for drivers or compliance. And last but not least, manufacturing and operation and maintenance. Let's look at the Volvo use cases uh, driven by Activity, Abbeyway and here companies. In Volvo truck large factories, the objective is to track racks carrying engine across uh, 35,000 square meter sites. Here, we leverage the Wi-Fi to locate assets. When devices are near an access point, the here database knows the position of X, each Wi-Fi access point and participate in locating the devices. The location position is set sensory through the long-range LoRaWAN networks up to the application server. And the location technology is Wi-Fi fingerprinting. It meets a five-meter accuracy. Abbeyway trackers are used also under harsh conditions with 70 degrees Celsius temperature. Of course, the uh, fingerprinting Wi-Fi is a process that correlates the RSSI signal from devices. In short, on these large factories, you can locate any track in real time. So you optimize your delivery process, your logistic process on the site. Okay. That's fantastic. So uh, did have you gotten any feedback in terms of uh, um, uh, any specifics or, or even anecdotal evidence about uh, how how much better inventory control is or how more how much more efficient uh, the tracking makes the process so uh, more generally on on this uh, use cases I think it, it's uh, similar that what we see on uh, generally on the market, you, I mean, logistics companies, car makers lose every year a fraction of their racks. Yes, you lose racks. Or, or you take time to find out uh, the racks uh, to deliver your parts. It can be uh, 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 an order of magnitude of between 5 to 10% of your racks lost every year. Yes, it means that uh, the consequence, the impact, is that you have no uh, compliance with your just-in-time logistics because you know that today it's key. Uh, you don't have any large inventories, so you need to uh, optimize your track to time to be able to deliver your, your racks on the right place in the world. Think that it's delivered across more than 50 countries on five continents. So if you lose, let's say, five hours, 10 hours to find out your, 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 your racks, it has a big impact on your delivery chain and at the end on your delivery, your car delivery for end customers. And we talk about hundreds of millions 
of tracks to be managed on time and not to be lost. To, to be lost, sorry. That's pretty impressive. Um, so that's at the level of the vehicles themselves. Um, are there applications, uh, are there practical applications where people are tracking um, um, inventory that's not quite as large as a truck? Does this work at, uh, you know, the the box level or, you know, uh, uh, the individual product level when you're talking about, uh, I don't know, uh, a stereo amplifier or a laptop computer? So today, yes, some, some players are working on that and use some individual tracking uh, solution. Here, it's always a question of ROI. Uh, I mean, you will track a valuable asset itself, but you will not track an individual one if it's less than uh, a certain amount of, of, of money, right? It seems as if that there, we're seeing more and more smart buildings, smart cities, uh, smart roads. Do you have any uh, examples of those types of applications that are being implemented with the combination of LoRaWAN and, and Wi-Fi? So there is an interesting use case from uh, Charter in the US uh, on the mm -hmm. smart pole. On one smart pole in the city, you can manage both uh, high throughput use cases like camera, like uh, broadband services, internet services to the to the uh, the public, and at the same time on the same smart pole, you will have some very small uh, sensors monitoring uh, people attendance, monitoring air quality, or potentially pollution. Can monitor noise also because you know that now cities are trying to uh, uh, fight against uh, the noise issue. Mm -hmm. So that's a nice use case where uh, in a few meters on one smart pole, you can have uh, both technologies uh, serving, uh, let's say, the population, I would say. Oh, so that's kind of fascinating. So uh, more for data collection and monitoring um, than being able to use the, the data you collect to, uh, to craft policy. Exactly. So uh, in that case, there is a second interest. Uh, most of the time, the city has already deployed his Wi-Fi networks. Mm -hmm. And here, the Wi-Fi networks in place can also backhaul, help the LoRaWAN technology to backhaul the data up to the cloud. And into the cloud is the same with the Simplicity Australian company use case where into the cloud, you collect the Wi-Fi and LoRaWAN data in the same cloud, in the same format, and then you can make the clever decision. It Excellent. can be energy monitoring, for instance. It can be solar panel monitoring at the same time with people attendance in a smart park in a city. Have there been any applications um, that customers have, have devised that have uh, either surprised you or which you're, you're happy to see? So, uh, like Bruno mentioned, 
uh, it's uh, various one application, two application, one on open roaming. Open roaming is the uh, roaming federation of the WBA. It's a centralized authority, I would say. And uh, uh, Cisco uh, made a POC uh, connecting, in a way, through roaming, the two technologies, LoRaWAN and Wi-Fi. So it was, uh, I was surprised that it, it would uh, uh, be possible, in fact. That, that was uh, one of the uh, compelling use cases that you, we see here. One uh, of the uh, use cases uh, also that it's not in the paper, but it will be in the second version of the paper. It's a disaster, disaster recovery use case in India that normally if there is, a, imagine an earthquake, you want to send your message through the Wi-Fi network to the cloud and uh, raise alarm. In that case, in, in, if you lose your Wi-Fi network, the LoRaWAN network with very low throughput could uh, back up a Wi-Fi network. I think it's something that has never been done uh, on the market today. Oh, that's fascinating. That's very interesting. There are, of course, many other um, you know, wide area network wireless options. Do you see that some of these other options remain complementary, that they might be useful in some applications? Uh, or is, it, uh, is the market developing so that it's more competitive yet? So maybe, Bruno, if you want to comment on what you are doing with the 5G, for instance, and uh, cellular, cellular IoT, uh, and it's the same with LoRaWAN. Uh, of course, there is a complementarity on the market. It can be not only the license of exempt technologies, but also Wi-Fi working with 4G for the last 15 years and LoRaWAN working with cellular IoT. More than mm -hmm. 30 mobile network operators deploy LoRaWAN and, uh, and 4G. So there is no limit in the multi-radio access network strategy. Of course, Wi-Fi and LoRaWAN are not the only one. They serve uh, many use cases, but uh, they also collaborate with other technologies. And I think that's the mindset of both uh, alliances. And I, I, let's, I let Bruno comment on that. No, definitely, Remy. And I think uh, a very prominent example of that is that even though um, you have a role within the LoRa Alliance, we are also one of the, the shares of this joint work within the, the, the Blue BA. Uh, what I can comment is that, in fact, we were very happy to see our open roaming standards that by nature uh, was not developed by a single radio access technology. Of course, we have this ambition of creating this one global uh, Wi-Fi network that is interoperable and uh, provides this seamless connectivity to any user in the world. Uh, but at the same time, by expanding uh, its footprint to cover this federated identity to more network providers and leveraging Lot Alliance passive roaming, we were for the first time able to provide this multi-run um, single roaming infrastructure to also cover the IoT use cases. So any providers that would like to get engaged, they are eventually centrally authenticated. And once they are in, we can scale the networks and communicate uh, directly. So this means that uh, if you are looking into an holistic uh, 5G strategy, 
by using some of these components, we have already succeeded in making uh, seamless offload, for instance, from Wi-Fi to, to LTE networks and, and in the past 3G. So that is working. Uh, by having this collaboration with the Lord Alliance, we eventually achieve uh, a much more dynamic ecosystem where, uh, like the automotive example that was mentioned, you have vehicles going from you know different countries. There are many data requirements that those vehicles need for batch telematics upload and so on that are not possible. I think that's really the the message we we deliver uh, with this new iteration is that we are ready for business, and anyone would like to to get engaged, uh, it's the right time to to do so. Very good, Remy. Bruno, thank you once again so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brian. That was Remy Lorraine from the LoRa Alliance and Bruno Thomas from the Wireless Broadband Alliance. The paper the two co-authored is called Wi-Fi and LoRaWAN Trials, an overview of use cases across regions combining two powerful technologies. <sighs> There's a link on this podcast episode webpage. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending December 11th. Thank you for listening. Thanks also to our sponsor for this episode, Next Input. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and Android. But if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with the links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.